you can reach us on our COVID hotline at 202-382-7664. That's 202-382-7664. My name is Nikki Strong, and this is VOA One The Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. This program is aimed at English learners. So we speak a little slower, and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, Ashley and I will bring you stories along with Brian Lynn. Later, Kelly Jean Kelly will present America's Presidents. But first... U.S. President Donald Trump is suspending immigration visas for some kinds of foreign workers for the rest of the year. The suspension affects work visas that many technology and landscaping companies in the United States now use. The move also affects visas for exchange students and heads of multinational companies. It also affects visas for non-agricultural, seasonal workers. But there are exceptions for workers in food processing, health care, child care, and agriculture. The Trump administration said the decision to suspend some immigration visas was necessary to protect U.S. workers. More than 45 million workers have reported losing their jobs since the middle of March during the coronavirus pandemic. They have asked the government for assistance until they return to work. Many have since returned to their jobs as businesses reopen. Business groups, however, strongly oppose the administration's decision. Technology companies and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said banning foreign workers would hurt the country's economic recovery. The effects of the ban may not be immediately felt. U.S. officials have approved few work visas because of travel restrictions during the pandemic. The following visa categories are affected. The U.S. government approves 85,000 H-1B visas every year to high-skilled workers, often in the technology industry. These visas are generally good for up to six years. In the U.S. government's 2019 spending year, the Department of State approved over 188,000 H-1B visas. Some 131,000 were for Indian citizens, followed by 28,000 for citizens of mainland China. Only 143 H-1B visas were approved in May 2020, compared with over 13,600 one year earlier. H-2B visas are for seasonal non-agricultural labor. The U.S. government usually approves 66,000 such visas every year, 
but the numbers could be higher based on demand. H-2B visas are good for up to three years. They are popular in industries like food processing, hotel work, and landscaping. In the 2019 fiscal year, the State Department approved more than 97,000 H-2B visas, with over 72,000 going to Mexican citizens. H-4 visas are for husbands, wives, and children of H-1B and H-2B holders. The Trump administration's declaration does not talk about H-4 visas, but does restrict entry for any alien accompanying or following to join restricted categories. An H-4 visa is good for the same length of time as the H-1B visa. In the 2019 fiscal year, the State Department approved nearly 126,000 H-4 visas. Over 106,000 were for citizens of India. J-1 visas are for cultural and educational exchange. The order affects J-1 holders participating in an intern, trainee, teacher, camp counselor, au pair, or summer work travel program. The visas are good for up to seven years. In the 2019 fiscal year, the State Department approved over 353,000 J-1 visas. Nearly 40,000 were for citizens of mainland China, followed by 18,000 for citizens of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. J-2 visas are for the husbands, wives, and dependents of J-1 holders. A J-2 visa is good for the same period of time as the J-1 visa. The State Department approved 38,000 J-2 visas in the 2019 fiscal year, with 10,000 going to mainland China citizens. L-1 visas are for high-level and specialized company employees. They are generally good for up to seven years. In the 2019 fiscal year, the State Department approved nearly 77,000 L-1 visas. The largest number, some 18,000, were for citizens of India. A Saudi official has said only a few thousand pilgrims can attend the Muslim religious observance known as the Hajj next month. Concerns over the spread of the coronavirus mean that fewer people can come to the Muslim holy city of Mecca. The Hajj usually brings up to 2.5 million Muslims to the Saudi city from all over the world. The pilgrimage begins 
in late July. Saudi's Hajj minister, Muhammad Benton, said a small and very limited number of people can come to perform the pilgrimage, possibly only 1,000 from the Saudi kingdom. The number, God willing, may be in the thousands. We are in the process of reviewing so it could be 1,000 or less, or a little more. Benton said in an online news conference. The decision to cut the number of people for this year's Hajj was expected, although it has never happened before in Saudi Arabia's nearly 90-year history. It bars nearly all Muslims from outside the kingdom from traveling there. The Saudi government waited until five weeks before the Hajj to announce its decision. The timing shows the sensitivity around major decisions concerning the Hajj which affect Muslims around the world. This is a very sensitive operation, and we are working with experts at the health ministry, Benton said. He said protecting the lives and health of pilgrims is important. Saudi officials said that no one over the age of 65 will be permitted to perform the Hajj. They also said everyone involved in the Hajj this year will be quarantined before and after the pilgrimage. Saudi Arabia first announced late on Monday that only a few Muslims could come to Mecca. It said they would be chosen from among people of many nationalities already inside the kingdom. It is disappointing for Muslims who have saved money for years to pay for the trip. Making the Hajj at least once is a requirement for all Muslims. It is also a chance to remove sins and to form relationships with Muslims from all over the world. It is a wish of every Muslim to perform Hajj, but because of COVID-19, it will not be possible this year. Chairman of the Islamic Center of India, Maulana Khalid Rashid, said. Rashid is one of India's most influential Muslim clerics. He said China is responsible. Had China told the world about COVID, the world would have reacted differently, he said. He added that a group of Indian Muslims should be permitted to go and perform the Hajj. The tradition should not be broken, he said. Usually, each country is given a set number of Hajj visas that are decided by the size of its Muslim population. Indonesia, the largest Muslim country, gets 221,000. 
Pakistan usually sends around 180,000 pilgrims. Pakistan said Saudi officials already told them about the decision to limit this year's Hajj. Pakistani diplomats already in Saudi Arabia will represent the country this year at the Hajj. I'm Brian Lynn. Americans talked little about the killing of hundreds of people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, nearly a century ago. When they did talk about the violent incident, they called it the Tulsa Race Riot. The incident happened over a period of 16 hours, from May 31st to June 1st, 1921. It took place in a part of Tulsa where black Americans operated successful businesses. Mobs of white people attacked black locals and businesses in an area known as Black Wall Street. An estimated 300 people died. Hundreds more were injured, and thousands were left homeless. Black Wall Street was destroyed. Under new rules developed by teachers, Oklahoma students are urged to consider the differences between calling the incident a riot and a massacre, the violent killing of many people. Yet, Oklahoma's state laws use the word riot when describing the violence. The state's new education guidelines are taking effect as a national discussion on racial injustice brings attention to how black history is taught in schools. There is no national set of rules on how to teach black history in the United States. A small number of states have laws requiring that the subject be taught in public schools. Each state sets its own education requirements. History classes often make note of slavery, the rise of Jim Crow laws, and the civil rights movement. Some experts and educators say black history lessons spend too much time telling about violence and suffering instead of the systemic parts of racism and white supremacy. But others say past unrest and injustices are not explained enough. In Texas, the Board of Education recently approved a class on African American studies for high school students. A University of Texas professor involved in developing the course, Kevin Coakley, said his college students say, they were taught a sanitized version of black history in high school. 
most of my students indicate they did not learn the specifics of slavery that I provide them in my course, said Coakley. Oftentimes they are shocked and angered to find they were not taught the information I am sharing with them. Oklahoma schools have been required to teach about the 1921 Tulsa Massacre since 2002. The massacre largely was not discussed in Oklahoma until a group was formed in 1997 to investigate the violence. The group is led by Kevin Matthews, a state senator from Tulsa and a member of the Democratic Party. Matthews said the new teaching rules have not faced opposition, but he noted that some people have said they would rather leave the massacre in the past. Older people called me and said, Why do you want to bring this back up, this dirty secret? he said. Matthews said his grandmother was a young girl in Tulsa during the massacre, but she never told him about the violence. He learned about it as an adult from his grandmother's brother. It was like a movie, Matthews said. I couldn't believe it happened here. LaGarrett King is director of the Carter Center for K-12 Black History Education at the University of Missouri. He says he believes there is too much attention being placed on violence in black history lessons. King provided training last year for 300 educators who are interested in teaching black history. He expects an online training program this summer to have more attendees than usual. That, he says, makes him hopeful. But he notes that history still needs to be presented differently. For example, he said, the country as a whole does not recognize Juneteenth as a holiday. June 19th marks the day in 1865 that the last enslaved black Americans learned they had been freed. White people don't acknowledge Juneteenth, but yet we're supposed to be a country that believes in freedom, King said. We have been taught July 4, 1776 is the real Independence Day, but it's not. The vast majority of black people were still enslaved. Lawrence Pasca is executive director of the National Council for the Social Studies. He said schools should be preparing to help students work through questions about discrimination, protests, and racial violence when they return three months from now. Do we have a curriculum that is responsive to the needs and experiences of the students we have now? Pasca said, That is an important question schools need to be asking. VOA Learning English presents America's Presidents. James Monroe 
easily won election in 1816. He had a relaxed, likable personality and was popular with voters. In addition, many saw him as a last connection to the country's founding generation. Monroe had fought in George Washington's army during the Revolutionary War against British rule. He was a diplomat during Thomas Jefferson's presidency and helped complete the Louisiana Purchase. Monroe served as James Madison's Secretary of State and briefly as his Secretary of War as well during the War of 1812. Voters' positive feelings carried Monroe into office and defined his presidency. When Monroe became president, the United States had just declared victory against British forces in the War of 1812. The American economy was also doing well, at least at first, and the government was mostly united under a single party. But Monroe did have one immediate problem. He and his wife, Elizabeth, could not move into the president's house right away. The British had burned it badly in an attack on Washington, D.C. Workers were busy making repairs. So Monroe decided to go on a trip. He spent the first weeks of his presidency traveling. He went north into New England, visiting important places from the Revolutionary War or the War of 1812. Everywhere he went, he reminded Americans of their shared, proud history. He even wore clothes in the old colonial style. One of Monroe's nicknames is the last of the cocked hats. Then President Monroe turned west toward lands that white migrants were increasingly settling. They were able to move west in part because American soldiers had defeated a powerful alliance of Native American tribes. What had been a victory for the U.S. government was a crushing loss for Native Americans. Many tribes moved farther west. Others began to lose their languages and their customs as white settlers took control. For Monroe, however, the visit west was a positive sign of the country's expansion. By the time he returned to Washington, Monroe had met many Americans. He had learned for himself the geography of the country, and he had demonstrated that all parts of the U.S. could be connected by patriotism and a common federal government. One newspaper called Monroe's presidency the beginning of an era of good feelings. Four years later, Monroe won a second term even more easily than his first. Yet James Monroe's presidency had several crises. One was the country's first economic depression in more than 30 years. Another was over slavery. The country had been divided over the issue since its founding. By the end of 1819, 
11 states, all in the South, permitted slavery. 11 states, all in the North, did not. The question became, would the new states in the West permit it? Monroe had to face the question when settlers asked Congress permission for Missouri Territory to become a state. Many enslaved people already lived there. White settlers expected to bring more. But a member of Congress from a northern state proposed that Missouri could become a state only if it banned slavery. That proposal started a debate that lasted more than a year. For the most part, the debate was not based on the moral problems with people owning other people. Instead, it involved economic and political concerns. Northerners argued that slaveholding states had an unfair economic advantage. In addition, if Missouri entered the Union as a slave state, its lawmakers would move the balance of power toward the South. The debate continued so long that another area asked to enter the Union. People in northern Massachusetts wanted to organize into an independent state called Maine. After some time, lawmakers offered a compromise. They said Maine could be admitted as a free state and Missouri as a slave state. But they also made a line across a map of the country. They said Congress would not admit another slave state north of that line. James Monroe signed into law what became known as the Missouri Compromise. It settled the issue of slavery, at least officially, in the U.S. for more than 20 years. But everyone knew that the peace between pro-slavery and anti-slavery groups was only temporary. In 1823, Monroe made one of the most important foreign policy decisions in American history. It became known as the Monroe Doctrine. It related to Spain's colonies in Latin America. Monroe had dealt with Spain before. In his first term, he and his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, successfully negotiated with Spain to buy Florida for the United States. By Monroe's second term, Spain had also lost control of some of its former colonies in Latin America. The president became concerned that Spain's European allies would try to help the country regain power. He did not want European powers interfering in areas so close to U.S. territory and so important to U.S. trade. So Monroe gave a speech to Congress. He said, the U.S. would stay out of Europe's affairs. But, he said, Europe should also stay out of Latin America's affairs. And Monroe declared that European powers would not be permitted to begin colonizing any area in the Western Hemisphere. In other words, Monroe declared that the U.S. considered the entire Western Hemisphere 
its sphere of influence. Historians note that Monroe did not aim for the declaration to be a major statement, but it became a base of American foreign policy and supported U.S. expansion throughout the 19th century. James Monroe was the fourth and last president in the Virginia dynasty. Except for John Adams, four of the first five American presidents were from Virginia. Monroe and his wife returned to their home there after he left office. They had a close relationship with each other, as well as with their two surviving children, both daughters. Unlike many politicians of his time, Monroe had brought his family with him on his travels. He also believed strongly in education for girls. When the Monroes lived in France, young Eliza Monroe attended the best school for girls in Paris. This loving family spent as much time together as possible. So, when Elizabeth Monroe died, James Monroe was filled with sorrow. His health also began to fail. He moved to the house of his younger daughter, Maria, in New York City. James Monroe died there one year later at age 73. Like two other former presidents, Monroe died on the 4th of July, America's birthday. I'm Kelly Jean Kelly. And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson.